so you, you'll notice I skipped over today. We're going to cover Zechariah chapter 8, which means I missed 6 and 7. The, the, the biggest reason for that was, honestly, I feel like if I, text, if I teach line by line through Zechariah, we're going to be here a long time in Zechariah. So, so where there's a couple things that are a bit more redundant, I'm just going to skip those, and we're going to try to get through the rest of Zechariah, hitting on the new themes in it uh, through the month of April, and then we'll pick up a new series starting in May. And so I'll, I'll skip around a little bit as we get through the rest of the text. But just as a reminder of kind of where we came from here, you know, remember again, you're going to get tired of me saying this, but uh, you've got the people, you know, who have come out of Babylon. Uh, the Persians are now in control, and they've sent the Israelites back to, or some of the Israelites back to Jerusalem to, to uh, do really whatever they wanted to at that point in time. These small bands led by Zerubbabel are there, and they're building the temple. Uh, rebuilding the temple it's not that great it's not what it was but they're rebuilding it they have all kinds of trials they languish for 16 years uh, they start building their own houses and taking care of their own things and then God starts raising up prophets to say no 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 I told you to go build the temple I told you I've got work for you to do I've given you a task get back to work and so that's where we see Haggai, we see Ezra uh, going through that time frame and Zechariah comes in right at the same time but gives a very different vision. He gives a vision for both the rebuilding of the temple, but also really a lot of messianic prophecies that come through the text in Zechariah. So the last few weeks, we've tackled some visions that God is really helping them understand that he's with them, right? He is with them. Uh, he is calling them to something great. And he is the one who's going to provide them the power to do whatever it is that he's asking them to do. So remember the vision of the lampstands, right, where we saw the oil that was coming from the tree, which was God, right? And the oil was, was what was providing the light, and, and that oil represented the Holy Spirit. So we, we saw that God was providing the power uh, to really be the light in the light of the world. Uh, we saw last week the different visions talking about God really not, not going to tolerate sin, but going to provide what is required to expel sin, right? To sanctify us, to make us holy and righteous in his sight. And then today in, in Zechariah chapter 8, we have a, 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 it's a more plainly spoken word that comes from God to Zechariah. But, but as I read this, you know, what I read in this was very much a word of comfort, uh, it was a word of promise, it, it was a word of instruction, and a word of encouragement that God's giving to the people. And I had a few observations as I read it that I just wanted to kind of walk through here. And the first observation I had was that this text is just loaded with promises. Hold on, I'm going to turn my phone off. Um, I have, I, I've got some issue on my watch where... It's all on silent, but it still dings. And I can't figure out how to make a ding other than make it go to do not disturb. And so that we're, we're on that point at that point in time. I hate technology. I run technology at the church. Yeah, so here, here's a secret real quick that you can't tell my wife. Like, you, you, like I'll know where it came from, Dad, uh, if you tell my wife. My wife, being the loving, kind wife that she is, got me an Apple iWatch for my birthday one year. And I didn't want it then because I didn't want to always have the dinging and the people getting a hold of me and all the stuff that comes with technology. And so my watch happened to break one day. And I was devastated, you know, that it broke. And so um, I thought I was good. You know, I'd go get like a regular watch and we'll be good to go. 
Well, sure enough, my loving wife saw that it was broken, and for my next birthday, decided to get me a new Apple iWatch, which I wear lovingly every day as it dings and tells me that I need to do stuff. So, all that being said, we're going to talk about God now. Uh, so, Zechariah, I just did. (laughs) So I had a few observations from this text. And you're going to have to just kind of walk through this text with me today. Uh, We'll eventually get to the point. But the first observation I had from the text was just how many promises there are that come from God. Right, I mean, he where where he is saying that he's going to be the one who does it. He's going to be the one with the power. He's going to be one to make sure the work is accomplished. There's just so many promises, right? And so, if for those of you here in the room today, I at the last minute thought it might be good to have a visual, and I apologize to the guys on Zoom that you don't have this. But if you look at what you have in front of you, all the yellow, right? All the yellow. These are promises that come from God, right? It's a lot of yellow. Like, if you just look at this real quick on Zoom, guys, it's a lot of yellow, right? There's, there, the vast majority of this entire text is promises that only God can deliver and that he will. He is saying he's going to deliver. So we'll talk about those in a minute. The other thing I noticed was just how simple our part of this is, right? So if you look at the green on here, which, again, guys on Zoom, the green, there's not much green, is there? Right? If you just look at this, there's not a whole lot of green, That's all he's saying that we need to do, right? So just how simple the instructions and how powerful the instructions are for our part of what God is doing. And then there's there's a little piece of here in red that I'm going to get to, and I call it wrath on this piece of paper. I observed something in the wrath that I just thought would be fun for us to talk about, and it's going to be a bit of an aside because it really doesn't go with the application, but I just thought it was something you should keep in the back of your mind. So we're going to talk about those three things in order. So as I read this text, I'm actually going to read it in that order. We're going to talk promises, we're going to talk instruction, we're going to talk wrath, uh, and then we'll get to some group discussion. Actually, I think I'm going, to talk, I'm going to talk wrath before I get to instruction. So promises. Let me just read to you this yellow text. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll dissect it. So there in verse 3, it says, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called Faithful City. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus said the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hands because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. All right, this is a vision we can all get. Right? If we just stop there for a moment. Jerusalem's a big deal to the Jewish people. Today, Jerusalem's a big deal to the Jewish people. Right? If World War III starts, it may not be in Russia and Ukraine. It's probably going to be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a big, big deal. And so for us, we, I don't think we quite realize how big of a deal is it because we are living on the other side of the cross where we are able to worship God freely anywhere we are. But for these people at this point in time, they really thought that God had to be worshipped in the temple, right? That the sacrifices had to be brought to the temple. So much of their application revolved around this place, not just God. And so Jerusalem, the idea that God is saying right here in this promise that he is going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, right? That's massive. Absolutely massive. Because the Babylonians had just come and destroyed this thing. So he's coming back. And then to say that 
By the way, Jerusalem, which, which your ancestors remember as a place of absolute devastation, is going to be a place where little boys and girls can play in the street, right? And you can grow old in peace, right? This is an amazing promise. And they would have put a lot more hope into this than we realize, right? So it's a big deal that this promise is coming. If you go down to halfway through verse 7, it says, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Remember, the people have been scattered. right? Some went to Babylon, some went to Persia, some went all over the place. The people have been scattered, and God is saying, I'm bringing them home. right? That's a really, really big promise. If you go down to verse 11, it says, But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days. Verse 12, For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant, those left behind, of this people to possess all these things. And he goes on in verse 13 and says, So I will save you. You shall be a blessing. Right? Again, really big deal. You're coming back into the promised land. You're coming into the land flowing with milk and honey. Right? Going back to the whole idea that came out of the Exodus. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to preserve you. You're going to possess all these things again. And you shall be a blessing. If you keep going down uh, to the very end, if we go down to verse 20, Let's, let's, let's carry on this theme of blessing because it says, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and listen to this, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I mean, just, just think about this for a second. Make sure you get in their heads. They've been destroyed by the Babylonians. Right? And the Jewish people have always been a people who've dealt with persecution, right? even back in this time. They've always been a people dealt with persecution. They've been destroyed by the Babylonians. When they come back into Jerusalem, they've been persecuted by the people who are there, right? They're not well thought of, right? People don't, you know, that, that's not the big deal. But the whole idea of being God's chosen people is that they be these people who would stand above and be a light to all nations. And God's telling him, not only am I going to bring you back, but there's going to be people who are going to be holding on to your robe, just hoping to be more like you, right? Because you are the people who are with God. Right? These are just really, really big promises of God. And so if you think about it for the people who were there, they would have thought about it in their immediate context, right? Well, we're coming back to rebuild the temple. The temple's going to come back, and there's going to be people far and wide who want to come into the temple. I mean, the temple, even in Jesus' time, right, the temple had the court of the Gentiles, right? There were people who just come to, to be amazed at the temple, right? I mean, it was, it was just an incredible structure, and so you see this, this, that immediate context, they would have seen that God's restoring the city and our people and our reputation and our honor and our relationship with him. He's restoring all those things, but we can read this and saying, oh no, he's doing a lot more. But if we think about the restoration of the temple as being the Messiah, as Christ, right? And you, and you see this idea of people holding onto your robes, wanting to go to where you are to know God. It's like, you see this idea that God's 
putting something together where the entire world, Gentiles, Jews, everyone, will come together and want to go see the glory of God. Right? This is a much bigger vision right? and a much bigger promise. And all through these promises, all through the yellow, do you see anything that the people are required to do? No. I really feel like we put way too much pressure on ourselves sometimes. And honestly, we think too highly of ourselves. Way too highly. I know I do. I'm very arrogant. I mean, I, I'm very confident and arrogant at times. Like, well, we think very highly of ourselves. All these promises, these incredible feats, not one time in there is like, and by the way, you know, I can't do this without you. Right now, God's doing the work. Right? He is doing the work. So I want you to just kind of keep that in mind, right? as we go through the rest of this, just how much God's promised that he's the one at work. So now we're going to take a quick detour. Let's talk about wrath real fast. So if you read the verses in red, uh, there's verse 10, uh, where, where it says this, For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I sat every man against his neighbor. And then down in verse 14, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so I again I have purposed in these days to bring good to the house of Judah. So you get this idea of wrath where I, I think we probably need to almost rethink how we understand it at times. And um, when you think of wrath, you kind of think of probably an angry God, right, smiting people. Right, and, and I, I deal with this every day. I mean, when people are walking through really difficult times in their life, they're normally saying, well, God's just punishing me, you know, because I did something wrong here, there, you know. And that's, that's actually a very Eastern idea, right? I mean, that's almost uh, uh, Hindu, you know, karma, right? You know, what goes around comes around. You know, that's, that's not actually how, you know, turn that off. Um, that's not actually how God works, so, so you, you see this idea that but we have is like, I've done something wrong, so God is punishing me, right? But I think we get a different idea of wrath here in this text, and I'm going to show you another text where I think it might, might help you understand a little bit more. What if we change our idea of wrath to not think of it as much of a proactive attribute of God, but instead we think about it as a reaction to an external stimulus? So if there is no cause, there is no effect, Take this back. If there is no sin, does God act in wrath? Right? Was God wrathful in the garden before the fall? Right. So is it embedded in God to be this angry, wrathful, vengeful person? No. Right? Actually embedded within God is the holy love that created all. Like to commune and to be joyful in this relationship. But we see when sin enters the world, it requires a response. And so think about it this way. Because we, we tend to think that when, when bad things happen to us, especially within our perspective, it's because we just have an angry God who is, who is causing it. So, so I heard this illustration yesterday from Cliff Sanders, and it was, it was a good one. He was talking about how when he was a young child, he was in the middle of the road playing. And his mom had told him, don't go into the middle of the road. He was five years old, and she was, don't go out into the middle of the road and play. And so he was convinced that his mom just didn't love him, and that there was obviously something in the middle of the road that needed to be seen, that she just thought that he didn't deserve to see. So he thought there might be like a pony out there or something. 
And so when she's on the phone and distracted, he, he decides, well, now's my time to go see the pony. Right? So he walks out into the middle of the street and starts looking for the pony or whatever glories await him in the middle of this road that obviously his mother doesn't love him enough to have. And so his mom sees him, and what do you think his mom does? Yeah, his mom runs out into the middle of the road, grabs him, and then makes sure he knows he's not ever to do that again. Right? Well, why did the mom do that? She loved him. Right? She loved him. She didn't want that to happen to him. Would the mom have done that had, had, the, would the mom have done that had, had he not walked into the middle of the road? No, absolutely not. Right? So we see this idea of, of God's response right, really being resulting in, in the things we do to disobey. And so often what we see in the text is not necessarily that God is proactively doing something, more so that, that as, as we are experiencing the pain of sin and the punishment of sin, it's just because we continue to go down our own way. Right? If you look back here in verse, verse 14, it says, I, As I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. Right? We see this idea of God's wrath being something that is provoked in him by us. Right? Let me read you another, another um, from the Psalms. So Psalm 81. If you, want, if you, you can just listen to me. I'm going to read from Psalm 81. It was in my quiet time this morning. It says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange gods among you, and you shall not bow down to a foreign god, because I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So open your mouth wide, and I'll fill it. But my people did not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. I let them do what they wanted to do, to follow their own counsels, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. You get this idea that God is not actually the one who is causing us pain. We are caused pain when we just continue to go down our own path away from him. The disobedience of walking in in our own way and not walking in his way, the end result of that will be pain, right? Because we're not walking in his ways. And so you almost get this idea that, that God is holding everything together, just telling us, just listen to me. Don't go down that path. Just listen to me. Come back this way and everything's going to be okay. Right? It might be different than you think, but it's going to be okay. But if you just keep going down your own way, you're going to suffer. Right? I mean, you're going to have the consequence. You're going to experience wrath, right? Because that's the nature of sin. Sin does what? It destroys. That's the nature of it. So if you read back through your Old Testament and you read all the times that you see, I've just allowed them to go their own way, right? It's almost like it's like I've lifted my protection from you. You're going out into that street, Right? I've told you not to go out into that street, but you're going into the street. There's going to be cars that come in that street. Five-year-old Cliff Sanders didn't know that cars could kill him in that street, but he's going to. If you think about Israel in the ancient Near East, around the time that this was being written, Israel would have been smack dab in the middle of the world. right? If you were to look at a map that was made at that point in time, like if there was actually cartographers, cartographers, Anyone know what a map? Am I right there? Okay, okay. I got nodding heads from the back. 
So um, you can say you went to a Bible study where we discussed cartographers today. So anyway, um, but if you look at the people, the way they understood the world at the time, Israel is right in the middle of everything. And for those of you who have been to Israel, you understand that if it's right in the middle of everything, it's right in the middle of all the trade routes. It's right in the middle of also all the military routes. There's that beautiful valley that runs right down Israel that provides a flat ground to get to anywhere you wanted to go in the world if you wanted to be a conquering army who invades other, conquer, uh, other kingdoms. And so Israel is right in the middle, and everything about it is set up to be conquered by people. Everything is. I mean, it is, it is impossible to protect Israel without some divine power. It really is. And so you see God almost setting them up saying, I am the one who's going to make things right. I'm the one who's going to provide you protection. I've almost put you in the exact place where you have to depend on me every day. And if you continue to disobey me, I just allow you to do what you're wanting to do. And then you suffer the consequences. Do you just see that? Does that concept make sense? If it doesn't, I apologize. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So, and that's the point. So what you just said that, that I really want to make clear here is we are just suffering the consequences of our own sin. This is where, if you ever have read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, uh, has anyone read that book? Any show of hands, anyone who's read that book before? Okay. Yeah, there you go. Let's see, we got one in the room. So, so C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and it's a fascinating book. And it actually is a book about hell. And, 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 and there's some things in there that are not theologically accurate, but all he's trying to do is give a vision, a different way of thinking about things. And in, in, in the way he describes the great divorce, people who are in hell, they don't know they're in hell. It's just the way he articulates it. They don't know they're in hell, but, but they continue to follow their own desires the entire time, and they keep just getting further and further away from each other and isolating from each other and suffering the consequences from each other. But the key is they never actually want anything different, right? They, they keep just following their own desires and, and they, they, don't, they don't think that what they're doing is anything other than what they ought to be doing. And you just see them continuing to suffer more and more as a result the nature of sin, the nature of disobedience will just continue to take us down that path where we're actually blinded to what light actually looks like. And so you see that come through over and over again. And, and that's a, we'll come back to this lesson in a different day because it's really not even the point of the lesson. But I thought it was just a fascinating observation in here that you see in this text that the wrath that had come so in such a great way was a, was a wrath that was provoked. And it was a wrath that if you read all the prophets leading up to it, they were lovingly warning the people for centuries to just turn back to God. The psalm, open your mouth, I will fill it. Right? Trust in me, trust in my ways. Don't keep going down your own path. All right, so let me, let me move past that because I want to get to the instruction we have because I hope to see that you can see the nature of God in this text and that nature of God is good. Right? He is a holy, loving God who wants to bless his people and wants to do well by them and wants them to live good lives, wants, wants the best for his people. I want you to imagine, when you read those yellow, imagine that this is, this is you as a father writing these words to your kid who you love so much and you want the best for. Right? That's how you should read the yellow, these promises, and you've got the power to do it. The green, then, is just what you tell your kid. This is all you need to do. 
Right? I mean, this is like my dad and I are, are currently in a battle with my son trying to teach him how to mow the yard, and it's not going very well. <laughs> and, and like Easton, my son, he doesn't understand the big picture. Right? The big picture here, like, the only reason I wanted to mow the yard is not because I need my yard mowed. That's part of the reason. But the big reason I wanted to mow the yard is because I want to instill work ethic. And I want him to submit to authority. And I want him to be disciplined. And I want him to remember how hard it is. I want him to remember how I felt when my dad made me do it when I was a kid. Right? I, I want him to feel all those things and persevere through it and build character as a result. Because I know that when he's 25 and he has like this job that's really, really hard that he's going to want to give up on, he's going to have to remember those times when he persevered through things. That's why I want him to mow the yard. But what does he say? All he sees is, Dad wants me to mow the yard. I don't want to mow the yard today. I want to play video games. Right? I mean, that's, that, that's for, for a 10-year-old, that's what they're going to think. He can't see the greater context of what we're trying to do. And so, still here, the people who are getting this vision don't know the greater context. They can't see it. But God's just telling them, he's not giving them these explicit instructions that map out their entire life plan. It's, it's not like God's telling my son all these things he's going to think about for the next 30 years of his life. God's telling these people, mow the yard. Right? Just mow the yard today. Right? Look at the instructions. Let your hands be strong. Go down to verse 13. He goes, fear not. Let your hands be strong. Verse 14, fear not, or 15, verse, he says, fear not. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgment that are true and make for peace. Hey, don't be evil in your hearts against one another. And don't go down the false path. Right? He's saying, just mow the yard. I mean, th this is not complicated stuff. He goes, fear not. I'm in this. Right? Be truthful. Be people of peace. Judge properly. Don't go down the wrong path. Just, you know, don't go out into the middle of the street, guys. Right? I mean, this is not rocket science. But the, the biggest observation I had in here was these words that kept popping up. Fear not. Fear not pops up three times here. Like, fear not. And what, what hit me is, is, is fascinating is anytime I've ever said fear not, it's because I'm getting ready to go into something that is going to be just scary, right? Or, or, hey, you've gotten some bad news. Fear not, right? It's going to be okay. Right? I mean, think about, think about the way, for any of you guys who've been through cancer or something, where a doctor would, would come in and say, don't be afraid, right? We've got this as you go down this path, right? Like, don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. Like, it's, we always think about don't fear in context with something negative, like a really hard trial, a really hardship, suffering. That's what we think, do not fear. Is fear not told in any way here related to something about pain and suffering and sadness and bad, bad, bad promises? Isn't it fascinating that fear not always follows a beautiful promise of God? Like, I, like I, I'll make sure I, I, I explain this. You know, if you, look at, if you look here, he goes, in verse 13, it says, so I'm going to save you and you're going to be a blessing. Fear not. Right? Or uh, back in verse 15, I purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, so fear not. Right? I mean, it's just, you, you, you read this and he's saying, I'm going to do great things, fear not. And I just found that so interesting. God just thinks so much differently than we do. And it got me thinking, where else does God do this in the Bible? 
And so if you go back into Genesis 15, I want you to see Genesis 14 and 15, we see this happen again. So remember, these people had come from Babylon and were coming back into the promised land. Well, there's another guy we talked about a little bit last week who was in the original Babylon area who God sent to the promised land. His name was Abraham, right? So if you go to Genesis 14 real quick, I'm just going to read you uh, a promise that God makes to Abram at the time, Abraham. So in uh, verse or chapter 14, I'll make sure I've got this right. No, I'm sorry. I'm in chapter 13. It says, chapter 13, verse 14, it says, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and, I will make, and, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And then if, uh, if you go over, and there's a number of other promises God makes to Abraham, then if you go over to verse 15, chapter 1, after God's made all these promises to Abram, he says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, Fear not, Abram, I am with you. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Right? So all these great promises were made, and he tells him, Fear not. And it, and it made me keep thinking that, Maybe, just maybe, one of the biggest things standing in our path, standing in our way of experiencing the great promises of God is our own fear. Just our own fear. And I actually, as I, as I pondered that more and more, I started thinking about, well, what am I afraid of? Right? God's given us some fairly explicit instructions Right? He's told me all these promises. I mean, we've, we've all are partakers in the promises of God. And he's told me just you know, what to do. It's fairly simple. What am I afraid of that's keeping me from just doing the simple commands that he asks? What, what is that fear in me? And honestly, if I, I'm, I'm going I'm to have you guys talk about this in your groups for a little bit. But I want to tell you my answer first. What am I afraid of? Back when I was in Australia, and I've told you guys this before, I felt like I got a very specific instruction from God to do something different in life, and my biggest fear was losing my money. Right? It was losing my money. I hated that idea. The prestige, the power, the money, everything that came with it, that killed me. Whenever I was in high school, right, and I actually felt like this whole ministry thing, like there was that in my head of, hey, this might be something God's asking you to do. I didn't say a word about it to anyone, didn't talk about it to nobody, not even my wife, or who was my girlfriend at the time. I didn't say a word. <laughs> because in my head at that time was, no, you're going to be poor if you do that. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just growing up in central Kentucky and we got to drive around and see all kinds of poor people. I, I, I just The idea of being poor killed me. And it, it almost kept me from taking this role and being obedient to what God's asked me to do. Now, I got over that. That's not, like, if I was poor tomorrow, it, it would bug me a little bit, but it'd be fine. Um, and luckily, you guys tithe really well, and I take 6% off the tithe every week. So I have no issue with money right now. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, by the way. I'm kidding. It's only 4%. So that, yeah. 
Yeah, money, money is no longer an, an idol in my life, though. It just doesn't, I don't think about it the way I used to. But right now, if I had to tell you my fear, what, what scares me to death is I am petrified that one day God would tell me I needed to leave this place. I am absolutely petrified of that. And he's not. He's not told me that. He's not called me to anything different. But I, I cannot tell you how much I love doing what I do here, being a pastor here, doing this, having my family here, just everything that comes with life here at Crossings, I would be terrified if there was anything where I felt like was telling me I needed to go away from this. And I could see myself, well, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm here. But that, that scares me. That really scares me. And it shouldn't, right? It shouldn't. People have had to give up a lot of other things before, right? But it absolutely petrifies me. So, so I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this question. God has made us very clear promises. And he's given us very clear instructions to follow him, to listen to him, to just trust in his ways and be obedient to his ways. And we walk in the light and we get to experience the promises of God. There's something we're all afraid of that's keeping us from doing that. Right? What is it for you? Right? What, what's that thing that, that scares you, that keeps you from just doing the simple things you know God is asking, you to do, asking us to do? Talk about that for a few minutes at your tables and we'll come back. Uh, let's, let's bring it back. I'll close up class with this. So you may, have noticed, you may have noticed a similar pattern just listening to responses in your different groups. But when I think about all the things that, all the fears I've had in my life that have kept me from being obedient to God, it normally was something that I was holding on so tight to because I trusted in it more than I did God. Right? I mean, if you really think about it, the root of all sin is a mistrust in God. Right? But do you think back, back when I was in Australia, right? I was holding on to my money, my career, because I trusted that more than I did God. And I did. Right? You know, there, there's been a number of times in my life, I'm like, I've got to be careful. I don't trust in the little C crossing community church more than I do God. Right? There, there's all these things that we can trust in. For people who go through addiction, right? You trust in your substance more than you do God. Like for anyone who's gone through CR or something like that, like you do. Like that, that's just how. And so you're afraid to let go of that thing that you trust more than you do God. And so Corey Timboom, I don't know if you guys have ever read The Hiding Place by Corey Timboom, but great, great book. Um, but she, she, after she wrote that book, she did a number of, of speaking circuits, and she was talking to this pastor who was clearly holding on to something. He was holding on to something that was, he was afraid of, and she could tell. And she goes down and she confronts this pastor, and she takes his hand and she squeezes it really tight, right? She squeezes it really tight. And she goes, you need to hold on loosely to whatever's in your hand, or else it's going to really hurt when God pries your fingers open. Right? It's like, I want you to just think about that. How, what, what is it that you are so afraid of losing, right? That you're, tr you're afraid of losing it because you trust in it more than you do God. That you are holding it so tight, right, that it's going to hurt when it gets pried open. Right? Just a really, really good image to keep in our heads. We have all got to be people who turn over our fear and trust in God. Because 
just like he was making promises here that he was going to do great things through these people, he has made promises to you. He is going to do great things through his people, through you. Right? I want you to remember, we are called to be salt and light of this world, are we not, my brothers? Right? Salt and light. We are called to be salt and light. He's given you that mighty task. He has called us to be prophets, priests, and kings. Right? We'll talk about that another day. It's a fascinating tale. He's called us to tell others about who he is, to baptize them, and to show them how to follow in the path. He's given you these great commands, these great tasks. And it is a darn shame if we let the fear of those little bitty things we trust more in him stand in the way of greatness. Right? The, one of the biggest issues with young men in, this, in, the, in our country today is they don't know what they're for. Right? They don't know what their life is for. And so they listen to podcasters and YouTubers and all this to try to tell them what their life is for. God has told us what our life is for, right? You are called to be salt and light. Fear will stand in the way of that. Remember the greatness you're called to. Fear not because God is with you. Whatever it is you're trusting in, he is so much greater than that, right? I want you to sometimes, because you're we're all older now, and I say older. Some of you are older than me. A few of you are older than me. We're all older, and we think we know everything. As we get older, we think we know everything. And we think at times that we're not that little kid playing in the street. But compared to what God knows, we're just that little kid playing in the street. Trust God when he tells you not to run out in the middle of the street. Right? Trust him on these things. He has a much greater context. Yep. Yep. I like it. Hey, you brought physical violence into the illustration, but I think it was great. It worked out perfectly. It worked out great. Hey, I can't actually beat that to, to end on, so let's pray. And uh, fear not as you go out. I love that illustration. Father, I thank you so much for just who you are. I thank you for the great promises you give us. We, you know our issues. You know what we're trusting in. You know our fears. Help us to fear not. Help us to know that we do have that great friend in our corner. Help us to know that things are going to be all right because you're in control. And even when we suffer, even when we go through pain, even when it hurts to trust you, that it's the right thing. And you will use it for your glory and for our joy. And we just have to trust you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for these men in this room. Holy Spirit, may you be with us. Help us to just trust in you and not to fear so that we can be a part of the great work that you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.